Hi everyone, hope all is well. This is Chris Atsuraki, co-CEO at NVR, and you're listening to a keynote episode at the Energy Hall of Fame. Now we're cruising through March. This month is fully dedicated to the powerful and very, very inspirational women in our industry. So this episode will host Iman Hill, the Executive Director at IOGP, the International Association of Oil and Gas Producers. I'm certain that many, many of you have interacted or at least are aware of Iman and her and her work. She has over 30 years of experience in, in leadership roles at BP, Shell, BG, among others, and she has gained experience in uh, pretty much all around the world, from the Middle East and Africa to South America and the Far East. And before um, joining IOGP, Iman was um, the was Energian's COO. And what another fact that I found very impressive about her is that she's a mother of five. Uh, she has been a very big um, role model, important role model uh, for us in the industry. So I'm very excited about this um, podcast. So we will be discussing, first of all, the important role of the IOGP uh, in the industry as well as her point of view in the current energy transition landscape. And what is her advice to her community? Before we start, though, let me welcome once again my co-host is Madalena. Hi, Mada. Hi, Chris, and good morning. And uh, welcome, welcome, Iman. It's a big, big pleasure to have you uh, on our podcast. How is everything? Thank you very much, uh, Madalena. Hello, Madalena and Chris. Everything's good. Thank you very much. We had some sunshine Weekend, so uh, all good. That's good to hear. <laughs> you're you're currently in London, right? Yes, I'm in London. Yes. Oh my, I miss it so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> without any further ado, I know we have a very very exciting podcast uh, in front of us, and I want to I want the audience to hear more about you. First of all, we are super honored to have you uh, on board today because. Uh, we have been uh, very eager to arrange this uh, sort of interview and discussion for a long time because you have been one of the key f- figures of the oil and gas industry as, uh, you know, of not just a couple of, of months that you have switched positions, um, but you have been on, on my radar for a very long time and you have a very impressive background that I think the audience should should hear more about. Uh, Iman, so if you, have, um, if you have a couple of minutes to run us through your career, your achievements, and just let us know who you are and why you're here today with us. Thank you very much. I'll do that. I started in the industry over 30 years ago. I didn't study petroleum engineering at university. Um, I actually studied biochemistry, and I did that at Aberdeen University. So as you, everybody will know, you can't miss the oil and gas industry if you're living in Aberdeen. When I graduated, I realized that I wanted to have a real active, you know, technology-led and uh, career. And I, I wasn't suited to either a role teaching or, for example, in research. So I started to look around me and I applied to uh, many of the, a number of the big oil and gas uh, operators that were operating out of Aberdeen and was lucky enough to be taken on as a graduate by BP. One of the best companies, really, in terms of giving you structured as well as on-the-job training. And, and really, they turned me into a petroleum engineer, including time offshore, which, you know, was unusual um, back in the, in the mid-80s. So my career, I've been lucky enough, uh, Madalena, to, to essentially I've worked 
in all of the continents of the world and in all of the settings in terms of um, geology, so from onshore to ultra-deep water in Brazil. And um, I've, I'm a petroleum engineer and I have essentially always worked uh, in the part of the value chain that is really about um, once you discover, once you have an exploration discovery, needs to be appraised and then you need to put together a field development plan and then you go into building a project and then into stable operations. And, and my skill set really is from that appraisal stage right the way through to production operations. Um, and as I said, I've been lucky to work all over the world in lots and lots of different um, uh, geographies and cultures and lots of different geological settings. It's really interesting and it's very unique to have women interested in that side. I mean, it used to be now uh, it's becoming a, a norm and I'm very grateful for that. But back then it must have been a little bit more challenging, right? I'm, well, let me just pick up on the last point that you made, which is I'm so very pleased to see so many more girls at school picking STEM subjects. And that's something that I personally have a real passion about encouraging um, but but you're right, it was um, in the mid-80s, it wasn't quite so usual. So in many ways, you really had to be, you know, you had to be a strong person. You had to be, you had to know your stuff. You had to gain credibility and respect. And as far as I'm concerned, that only, you only gain credibility and respect from actually doing your job properly and delivering on what you promised to deliver. That's still my foundation for what I do today. That's very true. And uh, I want to ask you, how was your career after? I mean, I understand that you started at BP and BP is really recruiting. It's doing very good recruitment, by the way, uh, at schools. Uh, I've also seen them around and, and they're very passionate about onboarding uh, very uh, great young talent. But I want to ask you, after BP, what was your next career move and why? If I take you blow by blow through 30 plus years, we're going to bore everyone to death. I'm going to try <laughs> and give you a little summary really that touches on the most important points, I think. So, so I did spend the first nearly 11 years at BP. When I came towards the end of that period, I really had a strong feeling that if I stayed in the same company forever, it would be too easy. Um, because you know you have your networks, you know how everything works. So I took the leap of leaving, actually, without without a, a job to go to. Um, and I, I did some consulting work for a while until I then joined um, a small uh, operator that had just uh, won the first production sharing contract in Turkmenistan. And um, I worked there and that was really interesting because I learned so much. It was such a small company, Monument Oil and Gas it was called, and I learned so much because you had to wear so many different hats and setting up a, an operation on the ground in Turkmenistan was such a challenge then. This was, you know, in the early 90s. But in summary, I spent, uh, I then went to um, Shell because Shell, Shell came looking and I really liked Shell's values and they really with my own values and I saw it as an opportunity to join an organization that was essentially in 149 countries at the time so the ability to be in different cultures and not leave the organization and I spent another just under 12 years there so two decades really in BP and Shell I couldn't have asked better 
for better uh, in terms of my, my own development and my own uh, training and grounding. And I did spend at least the first 15 years um, going through all the different te technical disciplines. I think that's important before you go to middle management and have to start making heavy financial decisions that you actually really have a good technical and, uh, and commercial grounding because I also was put through some of the commercial and, and planning um, disciplines as well. From then on, I, I decided that, that I also wanted to experience life and the way of working in smaller organisations. And I have moved to increasingly smaller organisations over time, uh, from Shell to BG Group, and then on to even smaller organisations. Because as you gain more experience, you're able to actually do a lot with your skill set that's just not, you know, kind of defined in one role. And that lends itself to working in smaller organisations. So I've worked in the Middle East, in in um, Far East, in uh, South America and uh, in the North Sea. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, been very, very fortunate. So I'm so glad to hear, Iman. And this is what actually brings us, that's why I wanted to go through your career. I'm very tempted to go down the road to discuss this uh, technical expertise that always helps a commercial, but not not today. I want to, to jump into a different conversation because your career has led you to be uh, chairing one of the biggest organizations in the industry, right? And I want to, and, and it makes a lot of sense that you have this background experience working with majors, with independents. They're two very different uh, worlds that you have actually gained so much experience from. So I would like to hear about this transition uh, from working for the private sector to something that has a bigger, let's say, scope or a different scope. And how, you know, what the organization stands for, as well as, you know, what your experience so far has been. I know you're, um, you've been there for not that long, but you have started making a difference. I want to hear all about this uh, career change and uh, what it means to you and how your experience in the oil and gas industry, the, the private, let's say, uh, sector, the nitty gritty uh, private sector has led you to today. Some of my friends have said to me, but you've always worked for operators in operations. Why did you take this role? Well, I think, you know, when we think about uh, IOGP, which is the International Association of Oil and Gas Producers, I actually feel very privileged and honoured to, to have been appointed in this role uh, through a selection process, an open selection process. And I was appointed executive director of IOGP in December last year. And if you think about uh, the, the, the time, this time right now for our industry, it's a pivotal and critical time for our industry. And IOGP, you know, I'm so blessed to work with a great team of highly dedicated and passionate colleagues. And our aim collectively is to really be the voice of the upstream industry, to further enhance the understanding of the contribution oil and gas makes to everyday life and to fulfil fulfilling global energy demand. As well as, and this is so important, as well as the critical role the industry plays in the energy transitions to a lower carbon future. At IOGP, we're also acting as a unique forum in which our members identify and share knowledge, good practices to drive and achieve significant improvements in safety, health, the environment, standardization and social responsibility. So for me, this was a time really actually to be in a role where I can also be giving back 
to this industry that has created the interesting and you know dynamic career and life that I've had. Uh, so this is, you know, I am so happy uh, in this role, I have to say. Sounds like it. And uh, I've seen, because I've been following the organization for quite a few years, right? I've seen the organization becoming more vocal with this transition. So I think it really kind of represents your your leadership as well to be, you know, now the times, as you said, they're very difficult for, for independents as well as majors for the entire industry. But I think you're leading with a very um, unique voice and a very straightforward uh, approach as well, which is, you know, it, it complies, but at the same time, it's, it's different to what we had seen before. Uh, I, I very much enjoy it. Maybe it's because we're going through the digital transition period. Who, who knows? So let's talk about this. I want to discuss more about the industry and what's currently happening. Uh, yet again, another COVID question. The focus now is though, while many uh, oil and gas companies, EMPs and majors, they're rushing to, to divest their uh, portfolio in order to attract investors uh, trying to go for this energy transition heat. How do you perceive it? Do you think that this is going to be uh, a major shift for the entire industry? Or do you think that uh, it's going to cool down a bit and maybe we're going to reflect back six months, one year from now and say, uh, perhaps we rushed into it or there is a different way to go about it. What are your thoughts on you know, um, your conversations you're having with the companies? Thanks for an excellent question. I'll tell you that without a shadow of a doubt, fighting climate change and achieving a low carbon future remains a top priority, not just for society, but for our industry. And really the current pandemic hasn't shifted this to the background, quite the opposite. It's accelerated uh, what we have been doing and will continue to do for, 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 for a long time. So to be very clear for, for everyone listening, this focus is not a short-term trend. It is definitely going to stay. And uh, we in the oil and gas industry are just as concerned about the need to act to achieve the Paris Agreement goals. But I would like to just take a moment um, to stress that there are different paths to achieving a lower carbon future. Each region, each country has a unique and diverse energy system as its starting point and with different energy resources, demand dynamics, technologies, capital available and culture. And the same is true for the oil and gas industry. So we share the same goal, but the, the ways we contribute vary. And I can talk about that for a bit longer if you'd like, but let's see if you have anything else that you'd like to build on before I go on to that. No, no, if you want to, feel free to. Um, I think it's a very interesting topic and everyone's concerned and, and eager to know more about this. Okay, well, let me touch on three areas where we're really working hard. We're continuously working on reducing our own carbon footprint in our upstream operations, really through a combination of measures, ranging from enhancing efficiency, methane emissions mitigation, and that means actually detection, quantification, reporting, electrification of platforms, which I'm sure many of the listeners will have heard from about, forest conservation activities, and really the integration of renewable energy into processes, into our own processes for energy delivery. Mm -hmm. Another key element is providing cleaner energy. As you know, over the past decade, switching from coal to gas has, has really proven to be a highly effective way to reduce power generation emissions, whilst minimizing costs and preserving grid stability. 
And I think such a switch, if we look at it, can reduce emissions by 33% when applied to heating and up to 50% in in electricity generation. Also a fundamental point, natural gas is the ideal partner for intermittent renewable energy sources such as solar or wind and likely to be amongst the most cost-effective options to reduce carbon emissions. So it has significant potential to contribute to the emissions reduction, for example, of the transport sector. And then my third point is really developing low-carbon technologies. This plays a vital role for a lower-carbon future. It includes carbon capture, utilisation and storage, as well as as clean hydrogen. And this is where the extensive know-how, project management expertise and engineering capabilities are just some of the strengths that our industry offers in fostering the development of technologies such as CCUS or hydrogen. And I'd like to just draw our attention to something that Fatih Barol, who is IEA's executive director, um, quite rightly said earlier, I think this year, that without the industry's input, these technologies may simply not achieve the scale needed for them to move the dial on emissions. Uh, if I just look at CCUS for a minute, please, it's, it's a high potential CO2 abatement technology that is critical to achieving the Paris Agreement goals it needs to be supported politically and through policy measures. This includes support for accelerating the the deployment of CCS projects, support for the transport of CO2 by ship, truck and rail, and clarification of liability issues where needed. Also, very important, I think, ill-informed voices need to stop encouraging barriers to this technology by saying that this is just oil and gas's way of ensuring the industry's longevity. Finally, uh, on this, green and blue hydrogen are not competitors, but complementary, and really they should be equally supported. Betting on green hydrogen only just risks failure. So really, in summary, we, we, we have a responsibility as an industry to help achieving the Paris Agreement roles, goals, and we take responsibility. And this industry has everything needed to take the lead in the transition to a lower carbon future, while meeting global energy demand. I completely agree, completely agree, man. Are you working as a as IOGP, are you working on any uh, reports that you want to distribute in the future or how are you equipping your members with such information uh, or such advice? How do you go about it? We are working on many, many things um, and it will be take too long, I think, too, too much time to go more but uh, since 2000 and I'll give you just a few examples so since 2018 we've been a, a member and a partner of the global methane guiding principles uh, roundtable we are working with uh, IPCA and OGCI for example on guidelines and good practices for methane detection uh, for uh, detection reporting and uh, reduction. We are also uh, working uh, on completing essentially a flaring management guideline with the World Bank's Global Gas Flaring Reduction Partnership that will be relevant for governments, regulatory bodies, as well as the oil and gas industry. And, you know, the other things that we do is essentially we have a lot of work in in the areas of biodiversity, uh, in some of the oceans partnerships, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot going on in IOGP, and I would encourage anyone who doesn't know the organisation to visit our website, actually, at uh, www.iogp.org, 
and have a look at what's available there uh, and, and the areas that we work in. And many of our, much of our work and reports are available for our members, but also um, others to, to take advantage of. Perfect. So another burning question that we are we are receiving because we have constant conversations with uh, oil companies. How can any uh, oil and gas company today, whether the, it's again a major, an independent, medium size, how can they become more attractive, in your opinion, to investors and an investment pool out there without diversifying to renewables? Is there such an opportunity or you think the only way is through slight diversification and energy transition? So this is a really good question. And, I, and if I may, I just want to set some context here before we go into before I go into answering your question. So you're describing the dual challenge really of fighting climate change while providing the energy that the global the global society needs. And I keep saying this because it's so important to remember that currently almost 800 million people predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa are living without access to electricity. You know, and hundreds of millions more only have access to very limited or unreliable electricity and there are billions of people who don't have access to clean cooking so you know the challenge then is with a growing population how do you balance the need to continue to provide energy through fossil fuels whilst tackling climate change you you asked the question how can iocs become more attractive to investors without diversifying to renewables you know while the demand remains huge and we've just talked about that Production declines by 8% per year. This is just a global average. Some countries and some, and some assets will, will be more and others will be less. And this requires investments in both existing and new fields. So the question that's being asked is, can investment in oil and gas be compatible with the transition to a low carbon future? I believe it definitely can, and it is. And the industry has to continue to demonstrate that and everything that it's doing in this domain. You know, we are producing hydrocarbons with an environmental footprint that's as, as small as possible, continuing to focus on mitigating our methane emissions from our own operations. We're driving the development of the low carbon technologies that we've talked about, such as carbon capture and storage and clean hydrogen. And we're also always focused on operating in a cost efficient and sustainable you know, sustainable way. Does an IOC or an independent need to diversify into renewables? I think the way I always look at this is that if we look at things as partnerships and we look at the journey as a journey, we can't go from step A to step Z in one leap. And as I mentioned before, natural gas is a very good and reliable partner to renewables. It doesn't mean that every company has to diversify into the renewable space. But what would be really helpful is for everyone that's speaking about all of this, including, you know, the public, to remember that there is strength in those partnerships. There is strength in balance between the partnership that can be created between fossil fuels and renewables, natural gas and renewables. And this is how you make the journey a consistent march forward towards the lower carbon future. Switching off oil and gas today will not work. It cannot work because of the, the, the you know the statistics that we've talked about. And it's foolish to continue to talk about that being a possibility. Exactly. 
This is a really good point. And Emma, sorry to interrupt. This is Madalena here. I think it's important that we do grab this message moving forward to the next question, because it's not a possibility to just cut on oil's production at all out of a sudden, right? Oil and gas. But we do know that it has become an increasing concern uh, from IOCs, from independents, and also, of course, for you, for, for IOGP. So how can we increase time efficiency? How can we decrease the costs um, of overall production? And one of the main ways or the easiest ways or proved ways to actually do that is through standardizing some procurement specifications all over the world across markets, right? Looking at this standardization as a key for attaining exactly that, uh, why do you think that this is going to be such a general way or a general measure um, that markets can use to really be more efficient in the EMP activities? Why is this such a key? Thank you very much. I'll tell, that's really, again, you know, some great questions you, you, you have. Thank you. As you know, the oil and gas industry is characterized by repeated cycles of downturns and then, you know, cycles where the, where the, where the oil price is high. And through those cycles, the industry has, ha- every, has had to every time essentially get better and better at, at, at increased efficiency and managing costs. And then you get to a point where you have to think about, well, what is going to create the next step change? And since 2016, IOGP has been thinking about that and set its eyes on reducing capital uh, cost overruns and increasing efficiency in the whole, you know, EMP value chain through standardization. And if you look at standardization of procurement specifications and you think about the fact that many cases, the same company will have different projects using different specifications that may run to 100 pages long and our supply chain has to cope with the supply of those valves those pieces of equipment to all those different specifications so as you can imagine that doesn't necessarily drive the best either cost or schedule efficiencies so our joint industry program, um, which is uh, JIP 33, this works on standardization of, of equipment specifications for procurement. And basically, it's one of, example of how our work at IOGP with our member companies results in tangible cost savings and efficiencies. As you rightly said, we initiated this in 2016 with the support of the World Economic Forum. Why? because the industry has been facing industry-wide overruns on capital projects in both cost and schedule of more than 40%. And this is not acceptable. And it, could, it, and it would, could be even worse under the current circumstances. So essentially, we are, by standardising the specifications used for procuring equipment, the supply chain can become more effective, faster and cheaper. And we've developed 35 specifications so far, building on existing industry standards. These are the ones that have been published to date. And these are now being adopted and implemented by the operators on major projects where benefits are already being demonstrated. Brilliant. This is a really, really good point. And it's great to see that you're directly involved with that and that IOGP actually took this initiative to to produce exactly those specifications. And also we are aware that this is not the only key subject or key topic where you've been quite active and having a very active role in terms of the industry. So maybe now we can even look into environmental protection as an overall topic, but specifically uh, what you have been doing in the Mediterranean region, because I believe you've 
mentioned this also during our uh, Mediterranean summit back in January. So would you like to elaborate that? What exactly has been uh, your priority in this um, sustainable and, or environmental topic for the industry? And let's forget that Iman comes from the neighborhood, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes, I'm, I'm privileged to come from the region and to have worked in the region actually for many years during my, during my career. So, and if you think about it as well, you know, the, Med, the Mediterranean represents the most promising exploration and production growth region in Europe. And we did talk about this at the uh, NVR um, uh, conference a few weeks ago. And we have, you know, several of our members have their headquarters in the region, including Total, Repsol, Gulp, ENI, SEPSA, and then many more have actually oil and gas activities in the Mediterranean. And one of the key strengths of IOGP is that we bring stakeholders together from within and outside the industry, and essentially to improve, amongst other things, environmental performance and reducing the carbon f- footprint. So we have been improving industry coordination with the purpose really of sharing know-how and good practices. For example, the knowledge exchange between national associations of mature basins like the North Sea and emerging ones like the East Med. And we've um, facilitated and been in talks with the Cypriot industry and with the Israeli Oil and Gas Association. We're very keen to foster the establishment of national oil industry associations or NOYAs in in countries of the region, for example, in in Egypt and Cyprus. And we also organize conferences like the one that we did in October 2019, which was really the subject was from North Sea to Eastern Mediterranean, collaborating to maximize the potential of hydrocarbon resources. And this was held in Nicosia and Cyprus uh, in collaboration with the um, MEP Costas Mavridis and supported by the president of, of Cyprus. And really, the objective of the event was to bring knowledge and expertise from IOGP members in the North Sea to the East Med to help maximize the potential of the region's oil and gas resources. And we also, you know, we we get together to uh, talk about good practices, um, whether that's in the realm of the methane uh, emissions detection, management, etc. that I talked about earlier, whether it's to share some of the work that we're doing in, in the realm of, of the um, of biodiversity. Another important topic is decommissioning and natural habitats retention, for example, when you are decommissioning, this is an increasingly important subject for the industry. So really, uh, that's our role is to, is to drive good practice best practice, provide the guidelines and the direction, and to make sure that those are as widely known and widely shared as possible, and to really get that industry collaboration uh, going in, in not just in the East Med, but we're talking about the Med at the moment, but, you know, all over the world. That's very true. I think you're kind of touched on the, the next question that was more about the Mediterranean that I had planned. So I'm just going to talk about your home country, Egypt. And I want to just express my, well, we are very impressed by what's currently happening in the country. I think it's building one of the healthiest uh, oil and gas industries in the world. So I would like to hear your, your thoughts on not just the, the ENP activities in the region in general, but also about in regards to, to Egypt. What's your opinion on what's currently happening? Are you happy with the developments? And what should we be uh, looking for within the next couple of years? Well, thank you very much. As we said, it's an important region. And, but, you know, just briefly, if you look at the energy demand side of things, 
there are countries in the region, predominantly in the Northern Rim, that are, that are gradually reducing the ener their energy demand and diversifying their energy mix uh, or reducing their dependency on oil and gas. But on the other side, there are countries that are still heavily, much heavily relying on hydrocarbons, and Egypt is an example of those. And I, I really like that you um, mention the, the leadership because I believe that, you know, under the leadership of, of His Excellency Engineer Tarek Mullah, who has been on seat as, as Minister uh, for Mineral Resources and Energy for, for quite some time and has really systematically brought the uh, quality and vision for the sector that's needed to, to put Egypt and position Egypt as a centre for um, and a gas hub for the region um, and, and really his leadership also for the establishment of the um, East Mediterranean Gas Forum, for example, which you know we as IOGP are, are also participating in. Uh, well, Egypt has relied on oil as a fuel since pharaonic times. Um, and you, you actually, if you visit any of the tombs, etc., cetera, uh, in, the, in Luxor or Aswan, you, you'll see it, you know, in the ancient uh, hieroglyphics and, and wall paintings. It's not surprising that more than nine of the country's primary energy demand has been met by oil and gas in, in recent years. Um, and it's not going to change overnight. I think that Egypt is a is is a shining example of uh, how to move forward um, in in with a balance of recognizing the uh, affordability and what your country um, your citizens need, as well as innovating and, um, and 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 putting in place the policies and regulations needed needed to keep driving. Uh, the industry and the sector forward and you know one of the th great things uh, about Egypt as well that is that this, this the um, stability of its contractual framework there has never been a time when Egypt has reneged on the contractual framework and the production sharing contracts etc that it has with the operators that are producing oil and gas in the country I consider the country to be really a, a great example of advancement and what can be done in quite a short time and a great partner for exploration and production. This is very, very true. I'm very impressed with, uh, with what's currently happening. As you said, uh, it oozes <laughs> potential and stability and it becomes a leading example for anyone uh, in the region. And it's an example we always use as, you know, who do you think has been the most successful um, in the past, let's say, 10 years that I, I've been in the industry? Personally, I always use Egypt as an example. I'm, I'm pretty amazed by what's what's happening. And I think there's a lot to learn. And I think there are many ways that we can share this knowledge and this know-how with the world. It's very exciting to see it. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I don't know if you'll notice, but there's been a lot more, as be, there's been a step up as well in EGPC, sharing its knowledge around process safety. There's been some webinars. So I think that this will increase with time and, and there is many learnings that uh, that can be learned from what Egypt's done. So as a last uh, question, I would like to ask you, Iman, uh, what are your personal views and, and thoughts and how to lead the organization forward, the IOGP? What are your aspirations and uh, where would you like to, to see your role? I won't say in the next five years, I would say in, the, in 2022. So I want the, um, the short-term uh, vision as well as the long-term for you. First thing I'm going to touch on is that we are in, in the process of a very big strategic review, uh, which is to look at how best to position IOGP for the transitions and for the, uh, the, the, the changing strategies of its members. 
So that's one thing. Um, but personally, you know, my personal dreams, if you like, is that everything that we do in this association is actually bringing value to the, the, the members, our member companies. And, you know, we have over 70, uh, 70 member companies producing more than 40% of the world's hydrocarbons. So our work has to be seen in that if we didn't do it, there would be a gap. And that's how we look at our work. So continuing to bring value. I think there's a huge role um, to, to step up our efforts in our advocacy for our industry. We're facing an unprecedented uh, negative public backlash. A lot of that is really built on, to be very frank, you know, misunderstanding, lack of lack of looking at facts, and in some cases, just pure ignorance. So um, I would, you know, I see a role in continuing to step up our efforts as the voice of the upstream industry. And I personally take that role very, very seriously. You know, we do an awful lot for this planet, this industry, and continue to. And we do an awful lot in the space of driving the energy transitions to a low carbon future. And I want more of that to be heard. I want to see an association that is working on the right things, that deliver the value to our members and is speaking clearly, vocally and consistently about what this industry is doing for this planet. I couldn't agree more, Iman. What really beautiful words. You know, making it impactful is exactly what we, we need to be looking for. I, I think we have a lot more to, to hear and see from you. I know this is not going to be the last <laughs> podcast we're, we're having. <laughs> I hope not. I've really enjoyed it, actually. Really enjoyed it. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. So I'd like to uh, wish you all the best. I know you're you're coming. You have a pivotal role in in this energy transition, and I know that you are. Uh, again, this is a professional crush I have in you. So uh, I really, <laughs> it's, it's, it should be how it's called. Uh, I really admire what you're doing, and um, I'm very eager to support you. I know Madalena as well. We need to work together to ensure that this industry, you know, has um, the best voices and not just that, that it's going to the right direction uh, with the right technology and um, the right uh, methods, uh, as you said, to kind of summarize. Is there any last message you would like to deliver to your members that might be listening or to companies that are uh, considering to, to join you? In the near future? Well, first, I just want to thank you, Chris and, and, and Madalena, for this opportunity. And the, the only message is, uh, that I'd like to leave is that if you don't know about IOGP, please have a look. Um, because really, I think that every single company um, that, that's operating in the oil and gas and the hydrocarbon sector can have a lot um, of value from the things that we do. And for our members, that it's a pleasure, it's an honour to, to, to be the, associate, the international association that works on driving the most important uh, step changes in you know, safety, our environmental performance, our cost efficiencies, and essentially our, our role um, uh, in terms of driving sustainability for the communities in which we operate uh, as part of our licence to operate. It's an honour and a privilege. Uh, and I'm very, very happy to be uh, at the helm of, of the association to do this. We can only uh, thank you, right, in the name or in the part of, of the entire industry, because it's 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 great to have someone with your ambitions, with your vision, with your experience. And uh, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast and also 
explore or allow the audience to have a sneak peek into everything you're doing. And we hope that we can go back to some more discussions very soon. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, ladies. And uh, keep safe and really hope to repeat this discussion uh, sooner rather than later. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you both. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you.